I felt like I was being hypnotized the first time I heard this song, and it hasn't left my mind since. It's one of those songs that demands your full attention. I don't speak Arabic, but even if I did, I might have trouble deciphering the lyrics. The song is called Yatalain El Jabel, and it's from a genre of coded music that was developed through the Palestinian resistance. In this episode, we're looking at the ways music is used as a tool of resistance, whether as code, in documenting people's stories, or as a vessel for collective healing. I'm Isabel Khalili, and this is Palestine Amplified, a four-part series exploring the Palestinian struggle through music. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I encourage you to do so. We considered the connections between global movements for freedom, and in particular looked at the example of South Africa and the way people used music in the fight against apartheid. Today, we start with a similar story. Here's Salma Al-Aswad, a Palestinian-American organizer and researcher who works with the Palestinian Feminist Collective. She tells us more about the origin of this coded music. This is often referred to as Al-Malula in Arabic, though it may be referred to by other names depending on region. And this is a type of Palestinian folklore or music that was developed on the basis of sounding like an incomprehensible code. But these types of folk songs were, in fact, a language. Essentially, the music operated as code, passing messages, especially between prisoners and resistance fighters and their mothers and families when they didn't want the British, some of whom could understand Arabic, and then later the Zionist occupiers to understand their messages or follow their news. So upon hearing it, it might sound a bit uncoordinated or perhaps a bit like an incantation, like a spell even. Selma emphasized that it was Palestinian women who really developed the intelligence of Malula. The women would compose the speech and weave in its meanings and include the messages that are to be conveyed. And then after encoding and rephrasing it, you know, matching it to a tonal rhythm so that becomes a song. So it's layers and layers of engineering, essentially. There were different methodologies. Some of it included reversing the letters of a sentence or inverting the last letter of each word. Salma describes it as a kind of next-level version of Pig Latin, a made-up alteration of English that you might have heard or even spoken on the playground as a kid. This type of intelligence really kind of dovetailed into culture so easily because there's a long history of using song in the everyday, using song while people cook together, while they work together, and while they planted trees together, while they foraged their crops together. 
With these songs so intertwined with everyday life, it was easy for them to be missed by security forces. So for example, a young revolutionary man might pass by and women would start singing in this way to pass along news. And this was done even after the Nakba in 1948. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic. It refers to the mass displacement and dispossession of Palestinians in 1948 when the state of Israel was established. During that time, more than half of the Palestinian population was permanently displaced. Today, there are more than 5 million Palestinian refugees. I read that to this day, there's many refugee camp residents, especially the older folk, who can still all speak it fluently so that strangers don't understand the words or that, you know, the security apparatuses are not notified. I was first introduced to it in a song, Tarweed Ashmali. It was written by women who would go stand outside of the prison cells of Palestinian men who were imprisoned by the British colonizers, and they would sing these songs to pass along messages. I think that it's helpful to think of this style of music, which was pioneered by women, as really part of a broader conceptualization of Palestinian popular intelligence. Palestinian popular intelligence was a term coined by Palestinian writer and revolutionary Hassan Kanafani. And he used the term popular intelligence to describe these various musical phenomena. And by popular, I mean from the masses, from from the villages, from the ground up. So in this early period, after the Nakba, the period of time in 1948, and in the height of the occupation, villagers, um, the the peasants, the falahin, they would have interactions, battles, conflicts, or clashes with Zionist militia. And afterwards, they would immediately produce songs. Sometimes they would produce songs to carry a takeaway, or they would produce a song to celebrate a victory. So they would be sung over and over again and spread out across many villages so that no one would be able to trace back that song to its origin. There were documented singers who were imprisoned and ordered to be executed because they'd be caught doing these practices. As Selma was telling me this, I was reminded of the story KEXP DJ Kevin Sir shared in our last episode, how South African activists were imprisoned for resisting apartheid, and how they refused to stop singing, even as they marched to the gallows. It always so deeply meaningful and inspiring to connect with co-strugglers around the world who are united in solidarity across our colonial realities and against our colonial oppressors. I also think of the people who were enslaved and brought to the United States from Africa and how part of their path to freedom was through songs coded with secret messages. 
I think within the Palestinian context, we have these documented histories of music being just a tool of liberation. And it also is a tool of cultivating joy and a tool of, you know, propagating our life-affirming values to one another and to articulate that As we continue to resist, we also celebrate. We also continue to harvest our olives. We continue to celebrate weddings and births. We grieve together and we celebrate together. When a group of people is constantly threatened with erasure, Music and art of any form can act as resistance. Indigenous peoples across the globe know this deeply. It's even reflected in the name of KEXP's global indigenous music show, hosted by Tori J and Kevin Sir. And this is Sounds of Survivance number 17. You're listening to it here on listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters, where indigenous people matter. Here's Tori explaining the show's title, Sounds of Survivance. Survivance is a concept that was delineated by the Anishinaabe scholar Gerald Wisner in 1999. The basics are that it's this portmanteau of survival and resistance. And Wisner himself describes it such that it's a renunciation of tragedy and victimry and an assertion of indigenous life. And so you can see how something like survivance has potential in describing a lot of different forms of indigenous expression. And here's Kevin Sir. I think a lot of our cultures, a lot of indigenous cultures, experienced like a real physical genocide, but that cultural genocide that came with it, with uh, being occupied in the systemic means of suppressing culture and suppressing language. So on a very like deep historical level, music plays a huge part in just the sheer effort, at least for Kanaka Maoli, for Maori people, for indigenous people everywhere in terms of reclaiming their culture. And for Hawaii, it's reclaiming their chant. We're oral people and our chants held our history, which hold the life lessons that all our ancestors learned from and carried forward through the words and the music. So just this sheer act of learning a word, of singing a song, of participating in a culture, it's a, it is a form of resistance, but it's a form of reversing that cultural genocide. When Tori was teaching a native literature class at UC Davis, he was struck by how his Palestinian students approached liberation. They didn't turn to an appeal to tribal governance, or they didn't turn to conceptions of tribal sovereignty to engage with 
the intersections between Palestinian liberation and indigenous ways of knowing. They turned to art. They turned to literature. They wrote poetry about it, right? And I think that that's something that's so, it's so telling of the ways that art in general forces us to grapple with the epistemological questions of human life, you know, and by that I mean like questioning and digging into our ways of knowing. Let me introduce you to Sabrine Ade, a Palestinian living in Seattle. I was moved by her speech during a Jewish Voice for Peace protest. I feel that as a Palestinian in the audience, every time he beats on his drum, I, it's like I feel it through my through my soul. So thank you for, for coming out. And I see our, our indigenous brothers and sisters have also brought their instruments with them, and I appreciate you all for that. We're all together. Once we started talking about the music of her culture, she lit up. There are songs that we say are like falahi music, like songs of the villagers, essentially. Hearing those, the melodies even, even if you hear no words, just hearing the melodies, it's almost like you can close your eyes and imagine yourself in Palestine, sitting by olive trees or, or you know, even being like with family, hearing these songs, it's... It's almost as if you're transported to Palestine circa, like, I don't know, 1940, 50, 60. For Palestinians who have been displaced and made into refugees over and over, music is an important connection to their roots and their land. There is one specifically that I listen to a lot, and it's called... It says, Like, you're leaving your land, you're going to the West or you're going to foreign lands, but you should know that your land is actually better for you, as in like better for your soul, better for your life, better for your future. That specific time, of music, I think has a different meaning for us as Palestinians and the music that we're hearing now. I think the, pal- the Palestinian music we hear now is next level hype music. Like it hypes us in a way that's like, like for example, there's a song specifically called Demi Falestini. The song title translates to My Blood is Palestinian. When we as as a community are hearing that song, it's like it, it's almost like charging you to remind yourself that, you know, we're Palestinian through and through, regardless of any outside factors, regardless of like the attempted erasure of our culture, of our people, of our land, like all of it. No matter what, the one thing they can't take from us is that our blood, that our, our DNA, that our roots, that our ancestors are Palestinian. Many Palestinians in exile are denied the right to return to their land. So for Sabrine, having the opportunity to see her homeland is deeply meaningful. 
I remember the first time I went there when I was like 10, I felt like I had returned home. As soon as I, I was on that bus and going into Palestine, something washed over me that just was like, like, now you're home. There's one song that encapsulates this feeling for her. It's called Mayil Ala Baladi. Like, come see my homeland. Come see how beautiful, like, and they start naming off the different towns and what they offer, the views of the water, um, different foods that you can eat in different towns. And I think that's what I love about music so much is that even under occupation, even under like some of the most horrendous um, conditions that humans can live under, um, music can bring out the best parts of it. Music can transport you into a place that's so beautiful that we don't have to think about the pain. We don't have to think about like any of that. Like, let me show you the beauty of my country. Let me show you what we're fighting for. Let me show you about like what ignites our fire and what ties us to our homeland. I think that when people can do that through song, I think they've really done something. <laughs> This is Huda Asfour, a Palestinian musician who we met in the first episode. We spoke on December 1st, the day the so-called humanitarian pause in Gaza ended. I think what is happening now has renewed my understanding of my parents' generation in ways that I couldn't even think were possible. I am living generational trauma over and over again. My father lived through the 1956 massacre in Khan and left Gaza in 1967, went back in 1994, and was forced out again in 2006. Huda's grandfather before him was also displaced and survived massacres. He was in Gaza in 1948 during the Nakba and had to flee to Lebanon. People didn't leave, you know, because they wanted to leave. They left because that was the only way for them to survive. People need to start learning about massacres like Der Yassin, which was condemned by some of the most respectable philosophers, Jewish philosophers in history, like Hannah Arendt, like Einstein, who both sent a letter in 1948 to the New York Times talking about how dangerous Menahim's Begin's visit to the U.S. is in terms of propaganda that gives credential to a terrorist organization, by their words. People can go back to the archives, it's a public letter, and see the kind of language that was used in kind of warning the American public from this kind of propaganda back in 1948. Menachem Begin was the leader of a Zionist militant group before the Nakba, and after the creation of Israel, he became a politician and later founded the Likud Party. This is the far-right party of the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Here we are in 2023, and it's the same story but with much more brutal arms, 
way much more funding and absolutely no shame in showing ruthlessness in killing kids and women and civilians and destroying people's livelihood turning them from a society that is able to survive all these years somehow independently and destroying every bit of hope that is still left my family in Gaza have lost all their homes there isn't a single home left from my entire family without damage our agricultural land is completely damaged people are in complete devastation in terms of psychological well-being so people don't really understand how you're being denied everything you are Huda's renewed understanding of her parents' and her grandparents' generations also extends to their music. The language became so much more relevant. Simple things like Samidun, steadfast. All of a sudden, I understood why people started using this word to, to reply to simple questions like, how are you? Because we're not well, but we're also grateful. And at the same time, you feel like you're in a battle constantly. So the only way to describe that is to say that we are steadfast. So the songs, the revolutionary lyrics, all of these things that I have to admit I was feeling a bit cynical about. And all of a sudden, I understand every single word that was ever sung within, like, you know, I grew up listening to songs, revolutionary songs as a kid. Those are the first songs I sang. I was obsessed with the band Sabrine. They were a progressive band, both musically and in terms of the lyrics they chose to use. I mean, one of the songs that was very famous at the time in the 80s was uh, which is called Smoke of Volcanoes, a poem by Mahmoud Darwish, a Palestinian poet that became sort of a representative of this kind of struggle. Huda's own music reflects the inspiration from these revolutionary songs from her childhood. I try to write music that resonates with personal stories, and most of the songs are either written from personal experiences or through other. You know, like I get inspired by a piece of poetry that really resonates with a personal story or a feeling that I felt. Like the band Sabrin, Huda has taken inspiration from the poet Mahmoud Darwish. The song you're hearing now, Mataran, is an interpretation of one of his poems, If You Are Not Rain, My Love. If you're born Palestinian, you really don't have much of a personal space, let's say. You know, like the personal becomes very much, very quickly political. Was 
Back in August, I spoke with the artist and former KEXP DJ Gabriel Teodros for another KEXP podcast, 50 Years of Hip Hop. I was working on a story about the Palestinian hip hop group Damn, where the personal was always political. Now, more than three months into the deadliest period of Israeli occupation since 1948, Gabriel's words mean that much more. I feel like in a conflict, any conflict, right, storytelling is absolutely one of the most powerful tools that are used in keeping a group of people oppressed, in telling a story about these people, demonizing these people, making an entire population scared of this other population that literally lives under apartheid behind a wall. You know, all of this is maintained through story, through what stories are uplifted and what stories are silenced. So when you talk about hip hop in Palestine, you can't divorce it from politics. It's in everything because that's what life in Palestine is like. You're living under occupation. You're living in a state of constant apartheid, right? Sometimes I think the most important stories in the culture are the ones that like really saved lives and can shift culture and can change politics. And we talk about hip hop in Palestine and the work that Dam has done. I feel like that's fighting cultural and actual genocide. Gabriel has used his own platform as an artist to continue to amplify the Palestinian struggle, most recently with his song, An Open Letter to My Cousins in Israel. Pay all these taxes to build a war machine that takes Palestinian land and ways of being. I know it's depressing. They say it's a different oppression, but the story is the most potent form of a weapon. They create fear to keep us all in suspicion. Why they make the whole world's biggest open-air prisons? Listen, this isn't religion. This is just capitalism. Just as music can be used to document a struggle, it can also be an important tool for individual and collective healing. This was clear from my conversation with Wendy Elisheva Summerson. Wendy is one of the founders of the Seattle chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. For me, there has been something very healing about coming into an anti-Zionist Jewish community and feeling connected to breaking the cycle of trauma through our actions. And being with other Jews who we love ourselves, we love being Jewish, we love the traditions. Judaism is so much older than Zionism. While there are various forms of Zionism, the ideology that underpins the modern state of Israel is political Zionism. It was founded in the late 1800s by Theodore Herzl and called for a Jewish nation-state in Palestine. This form of Zionism necessitated the removal of Palestinians native to the land, in order to create a Jewish majority. The state of Israel has only existed since 1948, and Judaism is so much older and has so many beautiful traditions of resilience and resistance. And for me, that's where song comes in. There's one song in particular that I've heard at Jewish Voice for Peace demonstrations here in Seattle, and also in videos from demonstrations elsewhere. It's called We Rise. 
It was written by Jewish singer-songwriter Batia Levine after the 2016 election. We Batia was inspired by the resistance they had witnessed weeks earlier at Standing Rock, and the song was an attempt to hold on to that vision of collective resistance. That song in particular has really taken off in this moment. I think it's a very positive song that's about feeling our collective power, and there's just a beautiful invitation to amplify our voices through that song. In prayer, we find ourselves here in hope, in prayer, we're right here. Thematically, you know, I think that music is so important, and that's why we sing at every protest because it gets us out of just our intellect and our brains and it brings us down into our bodies. And it also, we create resonance with each other, right? We're singing and we're, we're literally reverberating off of each other. And when our voices come together, it feels like this collective community rising up right now to say no to genocide, to say no to apartheid to say no to the legacy of settler colonialism and so i think music is such an important part of feeling connected through our hearts because i always want our protests and our actions and our resistance to come from our heart space instead of just our head space music can also be an outlet for us to process collectively when we're sitting alone and we're scrolling through our phones and hearing the like news, which gets worse every day as the death toll rises in Gaza, it's like so overwhelming for our bodies to feel the despair, the grieving, the rage. We can't hold that individually. It's too much. It's actually just too much. And so what I love about coming together and singing is that it allows our collective body to hold and process it. In our next episode, we'll discuss the role of artists in liberation movements. Real artists are always going to be vessels which movements and feelings and sentiments will be traveling through, helping and using our voice to, to lift people up that are being oppressed. That's next time. Palestine Amplified, the miniseries, was written and produced by me, Isabel Khalili, with editing support from Roddy Nickpour, Dusty Henry, and Larry Mizell Jr. Audio was mixed by Roddy Nickpour, who also contributed original music. Many interviews have informed this series, and I want to thank everyone who shared their time and perspectives with me. Specifically, Todas Food, Sunny Singh, Wendy Alisheva Summerson, and Sarah Ijoma Ulu, Jamir Iskander, Tori Johnston, Kevin Sir, Sabrina Arda, Brian Appleby, Blake Mann, Salma Al Aswad, and the many folks at KEXP who have supported the project. On that, I want to note that the views expressed in this series do not necessarily reflect the views of KEXP as an organization. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Palestine Amplified. Thanks for listening.